thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who Martha Stewart calls to plan her decorations, <laughs> Mike Van de Bogart. Uh, thanks, Joe, and thank you once again uh, to everyone that has tuned in. Just got a couple uh, quick updates for everyone. Uh, first, on the swag front, we recently ran a t-shirt kind of contest on Patreon, and our Patreon supporters... Uh, picked one of our designs that they like the most so we are going to be uh, releasing a new shirt for sale on our Facebook store and we're going to have a a store on our website here pretty soon and all of our Patreon supporters for I don't know Joe maybe the uh, next month we'll say uh, can use a code uh, we'll post to get 20% off on the t-shirt so uh, I thought you were going to say the code right here and then ruin it. Well, in, in all honesty, I, I haven't created the code yet. So, okay. <laughs> uh, and we also have keychains, so we'll get you, we'll get those on the uh, the Facebook store here soon. So you can uh, you can really deck yourself out in locations unknown swag hat shirt. That will be really chain. good for uh, chaining my keys together. <laughs> what keychains do? Um, yeah. <laughs> we also have a bunch of new Patreon supporters to uh, give a shout out to, so I'm going to go through these and butcher everybody's names like normal. Uh, <laughs> so we have Aaron uh, Wheeler, Lindsay Miller, uh, Rebecca House, uh, Roy Delgado, uh, Alex. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Alex. Come on, Mike. Um, Piero Warchek. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> There's no R in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, I really apologize. I, I I'm laughing because I also can't do it, but I'm not the one reading. Yeah, it. Uh, Stephanie Sh- Pywo Pywo Warzik. That sounds yeah. I mean that sounds pretty good. P i w o w a r c z y k. You know what? That person's fake. They just they they listen to our show. They know you can't spell things. They're like I can spell. I can't with- Sam. <laughs> I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a name with all consonants. <laughs> well, Alex, I apologize for butchering your name. Um, we also have Stephanie Chavez, uh, Fernando Sanchez, Nicole Weissman, uh, Josh McDermott, Weisenman, Weisenman. I think it's White. Oh, maybe Weisenman. W i s e n m a n Weisenman. Josh McDermott and uh, Kristen Robertson. So, uh, thank you so much to all of the new patreon supporters joe and i are are trying some new stuff to get more uh you know involved with the patreon supporters we're gonna have a wall of fame on our website Uh, one of those things definitely is not learning names though we're not doing that well i will we try to make an effort we're gonna have a uh (laughs) we're gonna have a a phone number where people can call in and leave voicemails that we'll discuss on the show which that that that'll be interesting 
Um, we have a Discord channel that Joe and I should be on there more often. So if you guys, you know, leave messages and things like that, we'll see them. Uh, so, and then, you know, just send us messages, emails, any ideas to get more involved. We're, we're open to anything. So, uh, and finally, uh, we ran a little contest uh, for our Patreon supporters, uh, like I said about the t-shirts. And when it was done, we randomly selected one Patreon supporter to get a free t-shirt. And the winner was uh, Roy Delgado. So, uh, Roy, uh, please, I messaged you on Patreon. So send us um, the size shirt you want and we'll get that shipped out. Um, let us know in the next week or we're, we're going to try and pick another supporter to get that shirt out. So, And I'm also going to be selecting a Patreon supporter randomly to get a free keychain. So trying to do more giveaways to our Patreon supporters. So just to show our appreciation. <laughs> so, Hey, Mike, how do you become a Patreon supporter? <laughs> Good question, Joe. You can, <laughs> you can go to our Patreon page, which you'll find in the links of the show here. And for just $1 a month, you can get access to a bunch of extra episodes and uh, swag giveaways and our di you know access to our discord channel and any other new things we come up with uh, so for one dollar a month not a day I spoke or I misspoke one dollar a month uh, you can get access to all of that stuff less than a cup of coffee uh, so per month per month yeah <laughs> and if you uh, you you donate more or you, you do a higher tier, uh, they come with other things like hats, free hat, free mug, things like that. So head over to our Patreon page. Um, Joe, any other updates on your end? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, let's get at it. All right, everybody. Let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. Nevada Triangle, a vast area in the American Southwest, has been the site of more than 2,000 aircraft disappearances over the last 60 years. This imaginary triangle stretches from Las Vegas, Nevada, west to Fresno, California, north to Reno, Nevada, and back south to Las Vegas, covering almost 25,000 square miles. Over the years, some of the most experienced pilots have gone missing in this area without explanation. Join us this week as we investigate the Nevada Triangle. The Nevada Triangle, covering roughly 25,000 square miles, which is half the size of England, included in its borders are several famous national parks, including Death Valley, Kings Canyon National Park, Sequoia National Park, Yosemite National Park. 400 miles of the Sierra Nevada mountain range also run border between Nevada and California. The popular tourist destination Lake Tahoe is also on its northern border and the mysterious U.S. government installation Area 51 flanks its eastern border. Over the last 60 years, over 2,000 aircraft have crashed or gone missing in the triangle. That's more than the Bermuda and Alaskan triangles combined. This equates to an average of about 33 incidents per year when compared to the national average of U.S. aviation deaths of 393 
This means over 8.3% of all U.S. aviation deaths happen in the Nevada Triangle. So uh, just a, a note on that stat, that is kind of a generalization just to kind of give people an idea of how many planes go missing and crash in this stretch of land every year. So it, it's not... Yeah, it's a big area, but compared to everywhere else, mm-hmm. a lot of it's happening in this one concentrated spot. Yeah, and I think anyone who is a pilot or into aviation knows that flying is a pretty safe thing to do. Even private flying with how many people fly is, you know, not, you know, there's not a lot of death involved. But when it comes to the uh, Nevada Triangle, there there definitely is an above average number of disappearances, crashes, strange things happening. So... I wonder why that is. Do you think we'll learn more about it? Uh, we will, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the Nevada Triangle, part of the reason why a lot of this happens is because the Nevada Triangle does have some of the most extreme terrain and weather of any place on Earth, not just in the United States. So just within, I believe it's, it's like, a, I want to say maybe 100 miles or less, you've got the lowest place in the United States, uh, Death Valley at 86 feet below sea level. And then you have the highest point in the lower 48, Mount Whitney at 14,505 feet, which is located in the Sierra Nevada range. So right away, you've got some amazing contrasts in terrain. And, you know, that kind of creates a lot of weather conditions, I imagine, that affect, you know, pilots. You also have some pretty extreme precipitation that happens in the Sierra Nevada range. So uh, a lot of a lot of U.S. records have been set in this in the Nevada Triangle area. So, for example, uh, in 1985, Lake Tahoe set the 24 hour snow record with 67 inches of snow. Uh, Jeez. (laughs) Uh, Holy cow. Yeah. And then in the 1906 and 1907 season, uh, Tamarack, California, set the seasonal snowfall record with 884 inches of snow in one uh, season. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's, um, you know, it, it, it's pretty extreme weather. And, you know, as we get into this, you'll see that, you know, on the uh, the sane side of theories, I think weather probably does play a good good chunk of, you know, you know, factor of what's going on to these pilots. But Here's some other just kind of interesting facts about areas within the Nevada Triangle. Obviously, Yosemite National Park sits within the the triangle, and uh, that's home to the tallest waterfall in the United States, which has a vertical drop of 2,425 feet. Uh, Yosemite Falls, which, Joe, I actually got to see in person last fall. Um, It's pretty amazing to see in, in person. I anyone's ever out in california you got to go to yosemite it's one of the did you see any moon bows <laughs> no because of uh covid we weren't allowed to overnight in the park so uh yeah so we'll have to go back we'll have to do uh, an actual backcountry hike in yosemite yeah i want to go so i'm in on that one i was busy filming that's why i wasn't there <laughs> yeah uh so the climate of the sierra nevada mountain range is impacted by california's mediterranean climate but at higher elevations, uh, you experience an alpine climate. And just like I said, you can get a season where you have 884 inches of snow. So uh, pretty pretty wild extremes in weather. Um, like I mentioned earlier, Death Valley is only 76 miles from the highest point in the country, Mount Whitney. 
Um, as of January 2019, Nevada had 192 open uh, missing persons cases or uh, 6.4 missing people per 100,000 people. So that would put it at uh, the 13th worst in the country. So um, if you think about Nevada, if any of you have ever been there, it's really basically just two cities, Reno and Las Vegas. The rest is, I mean, I don't want to, you know, there probably are people that live in other parts of Nevada that will get mad by this, but it's mostly desert. So <laughs> um, that's quite a, a, a quite a high number for missing people for kind of a, a state that's really only made up of two cities, big cities. Um, so it's just an interesting little fact. And uh, finally, Yosemite, as many of you who have listened to a lot of our episodes, is known for as being a hotspot for unexplained disappearances. This is talked about, you know, lots of people talk about this, including uh, Politis. And we've even covered a couple of these cases in previous episodes, uh, Stacey Aris and Michael uh, Fissery. We also interviewed Michael's uh, sisters on his disappearance. So if you're interested in those cases, uh, check out our back catalog of episodes. So, so Joe, the really fun stuff to talk about now is some of these strange disappearances that have happened in the Nevada Triangle going back uh, to World War II. And it's not just small aircraft that go missing. We've got, you know, massive bombers and very experienced military pilots that have gone missing or have had strange experiences. So I'm just going to cover a couple of these and then I'll we'll, we'll talk about theories. And maybe I'll get your opinion, Joe, on what you think. Yeah, I've going been on. biting my tongue a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I keep wanting to say stuff and I'm like, end of the episode. Yeah. End of the episode. So, uh, So we're going to go back to 1941 to start our timeline. So Lieutenant Leonard C. Leiden was flying an Army Air Force P-40 Warhawk over the mountains when he experienced mechanical troubles and had to bail. While he safely landed within a mile uh, of where he saw his plane go down, uh, which was in the remote section of Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park, he was never able to find the crash site. Uh, there's not a lot of information on this case, but I actually did get onto a forum where there are professional, they, they're called professional wreck hunters. <laughs> and yeah. they basically just scour the planet for downed aircraft from like World War II and like the Korean War and all those, you know, wars of the past. And to this day, professional wreck hunters have not been able to find evidence of where this plane went down. Okay, they haven't been able to find wreckage and they have scoured this area of uh, Kings Canyon National Park. So we don't have a lot of other information on this, but uh, Lieutenant Leiden in an official report stated he saw where his plane went down. It was within a mile of where he landed and he hiked over there, couldn't find it. And now since 1941 to present day, the plane has never been located. That's crazy. I know, isn't it? That's insane. Like, like he, he's alive and reported the area because it's not like all right we've got this whole area to look yep he like saw it and you could even say okay maybe he was distressed because he had just had like his plane went down whatever but still it's like you could do math and say okay if you landed here yeah we picked you up here you were flying this way this is where you said the plane was let's just do a big grid yeah and it's 
It's a plane. Yep. It's not like he dropped like a suitcase and they're trying to find it. No. And yeah, and I mean, he saw it. He said it was less than a mile of where he landed. I, it's unexplainable. <laughs> but here's the even if even if he was wrong and it was five miles. Yeah. That's still like you have a good air. It's aliens. It's, I'm <laughs> it's done. It's aliens. It's aliens. aliens. <laughs> they took it. They took it. It's aliens. Well, in the, uh, right. the thing, yeah, <laughs> and the thing that is is even more interesting about that is you've had professionals trying to find the plane for sixty years and they can't find it. I mean, it's not like the grid of where they need to search is that big. They kind of know where it went down. So where's the plane? So um, that that's our first kind of mysterious disappearance that stands out in the triangle. Our next one is not too many years later. So uh, this one is, uh, I think less um, strange, but I, well, I'll go through the timeline. So December 5th, 1943, a U.S. Air Force B-24 Liberator and a crew of six disappeared in the Sierra Nevada mountains while on a routine training mission. The B-24 was supposed to fly from Fresno's Hammerfield to Bakersfield, California, onto Tucson, Arizona, and then back to Fresno. Uh, so the plane disappeared. So the following day, an extensive search by the military kicked off, and they launched an additional nine B-24s to aid in the search. However, during the search, another one of the nine B-24s piloted by a squadron commander, Captain William Darden, and five of his seven crew also went missing. And this is, uh, this is a little bizarre. So, uh, so obviously they went missing while searching for this uh, first bomber. The plane would eventually be discovered in 1955 when Huntington Lake Reservoir was drained for repairs. According to U.S. military records, the second bomber experienced high wind turbulence and began to lose hydraulic pressure. The captain decided to try and land on what he said was a frozen lake and ordered his men to jump. Uh, But only two of the uh, crew members actually jumped out of the plane. So, oddly... The two crew members who jumped and survived said they could clearly see the lake wasn't frozen and have no idea why the captain would try to put the plane down there. So uh, the first plane's disappearance went unsolved for 15 years until it was found by a U.S. geological survey team high up in a remote section of the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, near what then was an unnamed lake that is now called Hester Lake, named after the father uh, of the pilot from the first bomber. And in that case, the U.S. military has still not released any details of what happened to the first bomber. And I think what kind of sticks out to me from this disappearance is what happened with the second bomber. So yeah, the, cap- the commander s- said he was putting it down on that lake Uh, because he said it was frozen, but you have uh, two of the crew members who on the record stated we could clearly see the lake wasn't frozen and have no idea why he put that plane down in that lake. So, so they like, they like parachute jumped out of the plane. Yeah. The two that survived. I'm so dumb. I thought like (laughs) he was going to put it down this lake and as he was putting it down, they're going to like jump off out of the door (laughs) and like roll. No. (laughs) I'm like, I'm so dumb. I'm having one of those mornings. No. uh, So yeah, they, uh, (laughs) B-24s are pretty big bombers. So they were, they would have been able to jump out while it's flying. But it, it, you know, I guess 
you could go about this in a couple different ways. Maybe there was no other area for them to put the plane down. Maybe it was all tree covered, uh, mountainous terrain, or you could go the conspiracy route and say, what was the commander hiding? Was there something on that plane? <laughs> uh, it's just bizarre to me that, you know, the the commander would claim that the lake was frozen. So in the, the two guys that jumped claimed it wasn't. So I don't know. Well, and then the other one wasn't found. So like, was it cleaned up? Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was found eventually in 1955, but again, the military didn't release any records as to what happened uh, to that plane. So just another bizarre disappearance. And uh, it's not unusual for military aircraft to go down. It still happens to this day. I, I know, it's sad. Yeah, they're just flying so much and launching so many times, like it's a numbers game. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's there, especially today. Some of these aircraft are incredibly uh, complex machines, and a lot of things can go wrong. But you know, people forget too. Back in the '40s, and you know, we'd only been flying for a couple decades. You know, in the 1940s, yeah. flying was still a pretty dangerous endeavor back then. Um, flying is still new. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> if you think about it, like in the length of the entire history of civilization, like we just started flying. Yeah, that's true. And it's, I mean, it not to get into, you know, flying that much, but it's incredibly safe now. It, it yeah. If you look at how many people are in the air at any given time, flying is safer than any other form of transportation. Uh, it's really a, an engineering marvel at how incredibly safe it's become. Uh, but it has not always been that way. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> okay. So moving on to our next incident, this one is very interesting. I, I, this is probably my favorite of the, the, I guess I shouldn't say favorite, but it's the most interesting, I think. So we're, uh, it's May 9th, 1957, Lieutenant David Steves, uh, was flying a T-33 training jet out of Hamilton Air Force Base near San Francisco, and he was on his way to Arizona. When he didn't arrive on time, an extensive search and rescue operation kicked off, but failed to turn up him or his jet. Uh, after the search, you know, they searched for several days. They didn't find him. The U.S. military officially declared him dead. Amazingly, 54 days later, Steve shows up in a remote camp in Kings Canyon National Park. And according to Steve's, something had exploded in his plane and he had to eject from the jet. Uh, during his landing, he severely injured both his ankles and had to drag his parachute with him for more than 20 miles at high elevation and freezing temps. And he also went over 15 days without food or shelter. He eventually found an abandoned uh, National Park Service cabin where he found some stocks of food to eat. And he kind of, he stayed in that cabin and eventually built up the strength to continue hiking towards civilization where he was eventually found. So, Jeez. yeah, I mean, so he... <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm shocked they didn't turn this into a movie, or maybe they did. But he, uh, apparently he had, he carried, took the parachute with him to keep warm. So, um, amazing, amazing story of survival. But in 1977, a group of Boy Scouts hiking in the area found a canopy that authorities believed was from Steve's T-33, but the wreckage has never been found. Uh, so 
this is wow. This is kind of interesting. So I'll say my questions I had was, um, what happened to his jet? You know, was it is it just lost in the wilderness? Now, when I was doing research on this specific incident, there was a lot of because uh, this was at the height of you know the Cold War was kicking off. We were kind of getting into a competition with the Russians at this time. And there was a lot of rumors that he sold the crash jet to the Soviets and that he was kind of like a Soviet uh, double agent within the United States military. Oh, like he might have landed it somewhere and then he like built this elaborate backstory. And- Something like that. Yeah. And uh, he he claimed like that's totally not true. I, you know. I, it did experience, uh, you know, issues and I had to eject. <clears throat> the thing that adds to the mystery is we'll never know because he actually ended up dying in a plane crash only a few, la- few years later in 1965. So uh, was that plane crash suspect at all? They, uh, they claim it was just, uh, you know, mechanical issues with his plane and he went down with it. But Ooh, they did yeah, the, the, they? the military. So, oh, okay. <laughs> which, you know, uh, I know, I know. I'm, I'm being, I'm being. Uh, no, I mean provocative. So, uh, like I said back then, you know, these pilots would fly, you know, new and unproven jets a lot of the times, and sure. they would go down. Or did was he a double agent, and he was selling U.S. military technology, and they uh, got rid of him? <laughs> That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, as they found out that actually he was a double agent or selling secrets and. They're like, oh, he, he died in a plane crash. That's so weird. Yeah. So uh, it's just a, another strange incident that happened within the Nevada Triangle. Um, so, all right, let's move on to our next incident. This one's... Maybe that's why there's no movie on it, because, you know, CIA and Hollywood, especially back then, were totally tied in. They're not <laughs> going to make a movie about that if he's a, if he's the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would make for a really interesting movie. Uh, yeah. Actually, the whole him selling secrets in that... Faking that would be a great movie. Yeah. So anybody listening who is a, uh, a movie producer, great idea for you. Just uh, you know, give us a shout out in the movie for giving you the idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the was the producer that did the uh, all the alien shows. Oh, I can't. I can't remember his name. Pegasus or Pathion or uh, Pr- whatever Prometheus. The studio was. Prometheus. Yeah. Prometheus. Do a made-for-TV History Channel movie. There we go. <laughs> we'll consult on it for you. Uh, <laughs> They're like, we definitely don't need you two idiots. <laughs> um, so moving on to our next incident. This is August 12th, 1964. Businessman and developer Charles, Charles Ogle uh, took off from Oakland International Airport in a Cessna uh, 210A on his way to Las Vegas, Nevada. Charles was a World War II and Korean War veteran, and he was a trained Marine Corps pilot. Uh, him and his plane, on, on route to Las Vegas, him and his plane were never seen or heard from again. Uh, so in, in this instance, they don't know where it went down. They've never found... No comms or any like last-minute mayday nope, calls or anything nothing. like that? Nothing. Wow. And I mean, anyone who knows what Cessnas look like, they're... They're not, you know, they're slow moving uh, fixed wing aircraft. It's the planes to get real basic. It's a, the planes where you, the wings on the top and they're. Yeah. And those are the ones I always feel like you can like 
softly crash land those pretty well. Like they glide, right? If you run out of like if you run out of uh, like if the engine stops, something, like you can yeah you can you can like glide with those, right? Yeah, I mean Cessnas are. I think a lot of people train to learn how to fly in Cessnas because they're they're very you know they're slower, they're very easy to maneuver. Uh, like you said, if an engine goes out, uh, engine they only have one engine. If the engine goes out, you can you can easily glide it down to the ground and land it. Uh, if you're not, you know, if you're taking off and it goes out, that's harder. But if you're already at like a thousand feet, it's a lot easier to glide it down to a, a spot in the ground. Yeah, you can use gravity to keep your speed up. Yeah, and you know, most pilots, especially a Marine Corps pilot who fought in World War II and the Korean War. I would assume he would have the skills to do that in a, a Cessna. Yeah. So the fact that his plane was never seen or heard from again <clears throat> is strange. And fast forward now to 2007, and we're going to get in. The main meat of our timeline is going to be spent on the search around Steve Fawcett. I'm sure you probably remember this, Joe. I yep. I remember. It was in the news for weeks. <laughs> Uh, yep, I remember it. But so in 2007, when they were doing conducting the search for Steve Fawcett, they found eight other wrecks discovered in the Triangle area. Jeez. Yeah, <laughs> and they 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 say during the search that they didn't devote a lot of time in identifying the other wrecks because they were focusing all their resources on Steve Fawcett. But it turns out that later analysis of the wrecks were inconclusive. And they really couldn't tie any of those eight wrecks to Charles Ogle. So his disappearance still remains a mystery to this day. So his plane and wherever he went. But they discovered eight other wrecks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. That's eight other people that have been missing that they don't know about. Yeah, and I mean, when you're talking that there's been 2,000 disappearances and crashes in the triangle, that's, you know, eight seems kind of (laughs) low. Yeah. Yeah. so, yeah, to this day, uh, Charles Ogle, you know, his uh, case has not been solved. And I'm sure there's there's probably, uh, you know, professional wreck hunters out there looking for his plane. So uh, this is just a, a, a quick little incident. But in 1986, uh, a U.S. Air Force F-117 stealth fighter crashed into a mountain near Bakersfield, California, under mysterious circumstances. And the cra- cause of the crash has uh never been officially released by the U.S. military and remains top secret. So uh, I don't know. It, maybe they just they didn't want to tell people that one of their expensive stealth fighters crashed because of something really stupid or who knows. But whenever the military and the government refuses to release information on something, always makes me wonder why. <laughs> uh, so... Fast forwarding now to September 3rd, 2007. This is kind of the the big disappearance in the Nevada Triangle that got, I think, before Steve Fawcett went missing. I don't think people even really referred to this as the Nevada Triangle, but once he went missing, I think people started connecting all the dots and realizing, like, wow, a lot of people have gone missing in this location, and that's when kind of the fra- the term... Nevada Triangle kind of started popping up because I don't think a lot of people have probably even heard of it before. And when I was doing my research online, a lot of people like I live here and I've never heard of that before. And then they hear 2000 people, 2000 aircraft have gone missing over the last six years. Like, holy cow, that's a lot. 
Yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> so, for those of you who don't know who Steve Fawcett was, he was a businessman and a record-setting aviator. Uh, he was famous for, in 2002, he, he rose to international fame when he piloted it all the way around the Earth in a hot air balloon. I, I remember I remember watching, like, every every day on the news, they'd give an update on, like, where what, where's Steve Fawcett? And <laughs> I mean, it's pretty incredible to go around the Earth yeah, that's, in a hot air balloon. I, I still don't even understand how they... How he did it. Like, fly, <laughs> how, how you fly a weather balloon. Like, I always thought, I was like, well, I hope the wind goes the right yeah, I mean, way. He probably got high enough and just followed, like, wind currents. So there's probably a, the jet stream goes around the Earth. Yeah. Um, I have no idea how that works. He also right. he also set a record for uh, he did a solo trip around the Earth in a fixed wing aircraft. So he he flew this plane that had like a two hundred foot wingspan. I remember seeing videos of it. Uh, yeah, and he flew that around the Earth. And he's also he also has some records as uh, he he's sailed around the planet by himself. So. He's kind. Of, he just likes going around the planet in weird ways. Well, he's he's kind of an adventurer. <laughs> he uh, did. He has a lot of like land speed records, and uh, you know he's kind of a daredevil in, in a way. Uh, so, the morning that he disappeared, he he was just going out on a just a couple hour flight to just you know pilot. My, my dad does this a lot. If you, you're a pilot and you have a plane, it's fun to go flying. So whenever there's good weather and you have time, that you go flying. So sure. he was take he took off from a private airstrip near Smith Valley, Nevada, in his uh, Balancia Super Decathlon stunt light aircraft. So you can Google this, but just to so people know what it looks like, it it kind of in the simplest terms it kind of looks like a Cessna it's a fixed wing aircraft with the wing on the top of the plane it's a single engined aircraft but it's it's faster you if you've ever been to an air show they'll have these they can do they have like the smoke behind them and they do the loops and the corkscrews and yeah uh, they're very maneuverable very fast and uh you know Steve Fawcett obviously is an experienced uh, aviator and uh, he originally amassed significant wealth as a commodities trader and eventually uh, started his own financial trading company. So he, uh, you know, he was a very wealthy guy and he's doing all he's right. He's doing okay. So that morning he had told his wife and friends he was just going for a quick flight and they'd be back before lunch after a nice cruise through the early morning air. He, uh, he didn't plan on being gone long. So all he wore was a white t-shirt, sweatpants and sneakers. Uh, pet peeve of mine, he also left his cell phone and GPS tracker at home. So, uh, always bring your cell phone wherever you go. <laughs> yeah. Don't leave it at home. There's no reason to leave it at home. Even if you don't think there will be cell signal, bring it with. And yep. doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. So, uh, the FAA also confirmed that Fawcett, uh, did not set a flight plan that morning, uh, but friends had mentioned that he may have planned to visit the areas of Lucky Boy Pass and Walker Lake, and they think he was possibly scouting locations for an upcoming land speed run that he was planning. So he may have been, you know, flying around looking for some flat areas that he could, you know, you know, break another record because he was a record setter, as they called him. <laughs> uh, the plane was equipped with an ELT, which is an emergency locator beacon, that should go off in the event of a crash, but uh, oddly, 
in this case, it never went on. Uh, so, and it was reported that he had enough fuel on board to fly for about four or five hours. So, okay, uh, plenty of fuel. And after Fawcett failed to return around lunch, his wife began to worry and then reported him missing that afternoon. Now, within six hours of his disappearance, a, the, the search and rescue operation kicked off. And as you'll learn, this probably was one of the largest search and rescue operations since World War II uh, in the United States. It, I remember seeing it on the news. It was every day. Uh, I remember as a kid, well, I wasn't a kid in 2007, but um, I just remember seeing it. Every news channel was talking about it, local, national. It was kind of like the nation got caught up in the search for Steve Fawcett. And uh, so on the first day of the search, a civilian air patrol w- were searching the air, and they mentioned that they had to suspend the, the search midday due to high winds. And uh, But by the fourth day, they had over f- uh, 14 aircraft in the search effort, including one equipped with uh, this system called Archer, which could automatically scan detailed imaging for a given signature of, a mi- of the missing aircraft. So kind of similar to other systems we've talked about, especially in the, um, the gentleman that went missing in Joshua Tree, where they, they have camera systems on the aircraft that can take thousands of pictures of the train, and then it looks for things that are missing or that, that stand out that aren't natural. Uh, so this was some kind of system that did that for aircraft signatures. So by the second day of the search, the Civil Air Patrol uh, searched but found no trace of wreckage after initiating a complex and expanding grid, which they eventually expanded into nearly 20 square miles. So, or 20,000 uh, 20, square miles. I was going to say 20 square miles and they didn't no. find it? <laughs> <laughs> then they're terrible. 20,000 square miles. So... Like we said, Jeez. the whole Nevada Triangle yeah, is 25,000 square miles. So that is a huge area to search. Yeah. Uh, so according to the Lyon County manager, Jeff Page, within a matter of days, we had over 45 planes searching the entire area for Mr. Fawcett. It was single-handedly the largest search this state has ever seen. Uh, and not only did they have dozens of rescue crews searching on the ground, they also had so he was friends with a lot of uh, you know people in the aviation industry, and some of those high-profile names actually joined the, joined the search, including Neil Armstrong and Richard Branson. So oh geez yeah so for those of you who don't know who Neil Armstrong was, he's the first human being to set foot on the moon. <laughs> yeah, how dare you not know who Neil Armstrong is? And Richard Branson is the owner of Virgin uh, Air. Virgin is it just Galactic and yeah Virgin Mobile Virgin, Virgin it's like Virgin Industries yes but he owns an air he owned an airline and yeah he's one of the guys trying to go you know I actually got to go race cars at the spaceport down there in New Mexico Ooh, that sounds it was awesome that they have their uh that plane that like launches their Virgin Galactic yeah uh plane and I got to go see the hangar for that it was awesome cool maybe uh we'll talk about that on our Patreon episode oh <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe so yeah Richard Branson is one of the he's kind of like Elon Musk in a way he's trying to develop private uh, space travel I'm sure you've seen his plane I believe it's called Spaceship One that has been flying to the edge of space 
So uh, some pretty high-profile names helping with the search. Uh, they mentioned that on September 7th, Google helped the search for the aviator through its connections to contractors that provide satellite imagery uh, for Google Earth. Branson said he and others were coordinating efforts with Google to see if any of the high-resolution images might include Fawcett's aircraft. On September 8th, the first of a series of new high-resolution images from Digital Globe were made available via the Amazon Mechanical Turk beta website so that users could flag potential areas of interest uh, for searching. So anyone who's not familiar with Amazon... I don't, I, I don't know what that is. Tell yeah, me. Yeah, so actually it's pretty uh, pretty interesting tool that Amazon released with no fanfare. You, you would not know it exists if you didn't actually go out and search for it. I actually in college... Um, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, actually in college I, uh, I was... A, a user on Mechanical Turk, you could make some extra money. It's basically crowdsourcing kind of mundane online tasks. So a lot of... Oh, it's like a professional Fiverr? Kind of, yeah. So like a lot of companies will post, you know, Amazon used it a lot for themselves. So they would show um, listings and then the picture that was on that listing. And you basically just had to say, all right, does the picture match the listing? So if they're selling a a stove if a picture of a dog is shown you go no and then you get paid like five cents and it's real oh nice. yeah i mean it's you're not going to get rich doing it it's real mundane but you could you could do it from your computer at night before bed or something you could write a program that just like, <laughs> right spams it <laughs> and they had all all kinds of companies would sign up to have you know these mundane tasks it was kind of the age before i think a lot of the ai stuff that is probably doing that work now <laughs> uh but so by September 11th, uh, they had up to 50,000 people uh, scrutinizing more than 300,000, uh, 278 square foot, uh, it, you know, images of land that they've been taking. And Peter Cohen of Amazon believed that by September 11th, the entire search area had been covered at least once. And obviously, they didn't find anything. Uh, so by September 10th, search crews had found eight previously unidentified crash sites, some of which were decades old. The urgency of what was still regarded as a rescue mission meant that minimal immediate effort was made to identify the aircraft in the uncharted crash sites. Although some had speculated that one could have belonged to Charles Ogle, missing since 1964. And I had mentioned earlier that uh, eventually they... They said the eight wrecks were in, you know, they couldn't determine who they belonged to. So Charles is still regarded as uh, missing. So by September 12th, survival experts speculated that Fawcett was likely to be dead at this point. Um, like we said, he went missing on uh, September 3rd. It's now the 12th. And I forgot to mention he's 63 years old. Um, okay. Yeah. So by the 12th, you know, that's a pretty, pretty long time to, you know, be stuck out in the wilderness. And I'm, I'm assuming they, they're assuming he probably crashed to some extent and he had no food or water with him. And chances are he was in a, you know, a desert like area. So the chances of survival are, you know, pretty slim. Yeah. But so moving on, uh, Amazon's search effort was shut down the week of October 29th without any measurable success. 
Major Cynthia Ryan later said it had been more than more of a hindrance than a help. She said the persons purporting to have seen the aircraft on the Mechanical Turk or have special knowledge clogged her email during critical days of the search and even for months after. Many of the ostensible sightings proved to be images of the actual civilian aircraft patrol uh, searching the area so or simply mistaking artifacts for old images. So I think they appreciated Amazon's gesture of, you know, helping out. But, you know, looking back, it really was more of a hindrance than anything. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so now on uh, uh, September 17th, the, the Nevada wing of the Civil Air Patrol said it was suspending all flights in connection with its search operations, but the National Guard search flights, private search flights, and ground searchers uh, continued. Uh, by September 19th, 2007, authorities confirmed they would stop actively looking for Fawcett in the Nevada desert, but would keep air crews on standby to fly uh, to possible crash sites. And on September 30th, it was announced that after further analysis of radar data uh, from the day of his disappearance, ground teams and two aircraft had resumed the search. So they must have received some kind of information that said, all right, we should get back out there and look. We think it, we might have found it. Um, okay. But maybe they were looking in the wrong spot. And yeah, I think uh, when they kind of looked at it again, they're like, oh, crap, we should be over here, over there. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, on October 2nd of 2007, the Civil Air Patrol announced that it had called off its search operation. Uh, Ryan later noted that the search was the largest, most complex peacetime search for an individual in U.S. history. So just put that. Yeah, it went on for a long time with a ton of yeah. resources. We've talked about a lot of different searches on different episodes and you know the massive amount of manpower and resources required. This eclipse eclipses any of that yeah, and it, it costs a ton of money and it'll like it, it's sometimes polarizing to talk about the cost of like trying to find somebody but still like you're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars yeah it, i think one of the i couldn't find the total exact cost but i know the state of nevada spent at least 1.6 million and the wife of steve fawcett spent an additional million dollars of her private money and we don't know how much the federal government spent on his search. But like you said, Joe, it, it's in the millions. And then you have a, yeah. a lot of uh, volunteer time spent. So there's a lot of volunteer searchers that are on this that aren't compensated. But, you know, it it's expensive. These, these people have lives, jobs. Every You know, there's an opportunity cost, too, that putting all of these people in the field looking. So just sure. an absolutely massive and complex search. Uh, so fast forward a year. So now it's August 23rd, 2008, uh, almost a year after Fawcett disappeared, 28 friends and admirers conducted a foot search based on new clues gathered by the team. But unfortunately their search concluded on September 10th, uh, without finding anything. Now, uh, fast forward to September 29th, 2008. A yeah, so we're like we're like a year later yep. now. Yeah, a year later, a hiker found three crumpled identification cards in the eastern Sierra Nevada uh, mountain range in California, about 65 miles uh, south of Fawcett's takeoff location. The items were confirmed as belonging to Fawcett and included an FAA-issued card, his Soaring Society of American membership card, and a thousand dollars in cash. 
On October 1st, uh, later in the day, air search teams spotted wreckage on the ground at an elevation of 10,100 feet, about 750 yards uh, from where the personal items had been found. Later that evening, the teams confirmed identification of the tail number of Fawcett's plane. Oh, wow, so they found it. They found it. But I, I, when I'm done explaining the timeline, I'll kind of uh, I, I'll give my thoughts on Fawcett. Uh, okay. So the crash site is located on the western side of a ridge uh, whose orientation is northwest-southeast. The site is about 300 feet below the crest of the ridge. The steep terrain was sparsely forested with ponderosa pines averaging 40 feet to 60 feet. And numerous boulders and rock outcrops surrounded the grassy areas covered, uh, that covered the ground. Over the next two days, ground searchers found four bone fragments that were about two by one and a half inches. Uh, however, the bones were found to be either be not human or too small for DNA tests. On October 29th, search teams recovered two large human bones that they suspected belonged to Fawcett. These bones were found a half a mile east of the crash site. Uh, tennis shoes with animal bite marks on them were also discovered. Uh, so on uh, November 3rd, California police coroners said that DNA profiling of the two bones by uh, the California Department of Justice Forensics Laboratory confirmed a match to Fawcett's DNA. Um, All right, so he they, they found his bones a half mile east of where the crash site was discovered. Yeah, and uh, the Madera County Sheriff, John Anderson, kind of said what we say a lot of times, that uh, he believes Fawcett died on impact and that it wasn't unusual for animals to drag the remains away. So... Oh, okay. You've got a lot of, uh, you know, you've got bears in the Sierra Nevadas, and uh, we we mentioned this, that a lot of things can happen to disrupt a, you know, the remains. It, you, you, Especially a year or two later. Yeah, you have animals moving stuff around. You could have rain and snow melt moving things. So um, that could explain why the remains were uh, away from the crash site. On March 5th of 2009, the NTSB uh, issued its report and findings. The report states that the plane crashed at an elevation of about 10,000 feet, uh, 300 feet below the crest of the ridge. Uh, the elevations of the peaks in the area exceeded 13,000 feet. However, the density altitude in the area at the time and place of the crash was estimated to be 12,700 feet. The NTSB declared the probable cause of the crash as uh, the pilot's inadvertent encounter with downdrafts that exceeded the climb capability of the aircraft. Contributing to the accident were uh, downdrafts, uh, high-density altitude, and mountainous terrain. So my biggest takeaway with this is obviously flying in the mountain in mountains is more difficult than your typical like flying in Wisconsin or somewhere where it's flat. Any flat, yeah, flat land. But Steve Fawcett was a very experienced aviator. You know, he yeah, like he should be aware of those risks and things pretty Yeah, he he's pretty well read in on like what what to do and where to yeah, go. Yeah, I mean the man went around the planet in a hot air balloon. He yeah. <laughs> he flew around the planet in a, a single engine fixed wing aircraft. He he sailed around the planet. He's he's not a a, a dumb guy. He understands you know 
risks. I he, he was a very experienced pilot. I just have questions about what he was doing. If he was out searching for, you know, somewhere to do a new land speed record, that's not up in the Sierra Nevadas. That would be, you know, out in, you know, the salt beds of Nevada. Sure. Uh, so I did, was there something else going on here? Not just pilot error flying too close to the mountains. I know they say a lot of crashes do happen in the mountains because pilots are inexperienced and they underestimate the winds involved in. Yeah, this wouldn't be him. This wouldn't be him. He wouldn't. He probably, you know, he wouldn't fly that close to the mountains. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I feel like something else was going on with this crash. Maybe he had a medical emergency, and became unconscious oh, and like, his, like had a heart attack or something and, and his plane just you know flew too close to the mountains or yeah. um there was a lot of at the time there was a lot of rumors going around in the public that he uh he purposely disappeared to avoid the stress of life and you know things like that um i don't buy that he was a successful well and they found his the body yeah so I mean, it's while he was still missing, I'd say that would be a potential yep. thing. So yeah, so uh, you know the 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 official cause of his disappearance was basically pilot error and wind conditions. Um, I don't know. I, it just doesn't seem like something such an experienced pilot would do. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you kind of in the <sighs> same frame of that? <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. I I don't think I'm seeing anything here, hearing anything from you that sounds super shady. Like with all the experience, I mean, let's let's look at it this way. When he, when you have experience and you know what you're doing, that reduces the likelihood of something going wrong to very small. Yeah. It doesn't eliminate the fact that he's a human being and human beings make mistakes. No matter how expert you are at something, all it takes is one error. Um, there's also, I mean, he was older, and I'm going to use this just, just as like an ageism thing of you take less risks when you get older. You're not like as cocky. So I'm not thinking like maybe he was trying to do something crazy. Um, he's probably just playing it smart, but who knows? Maybe he just got like, oh, I'm going to go like do something fun. Yeah. And made a, a calculation error or, like, was taking a risk that he knew was a risk. But, you know, maybe his experience kind of got the best of him in that regard where he thought he could do something and couldn't. Um, I, I don't know. I I would say I don't see any conspiracies here where I would in some of the other stories. Yeah, yeah it's uh, – I just – when you look at the facts, and I, I don't want to try and make this into something that's not, but he wasn't – planning to fly in the mountains that day he was planning to go basically scope out some spots for a land you know land speed record coming up he was only gonna be out for a few hours um well let, let me let me play this card okay. so he's going to look out some spots and he sees you know the sun hitting the mountains beautifully and he just wants to go fly and look at them i mean i i could imagine if i'm in a plane i see something beautiful yeah. i'm in a plane i'm just gonna <laughs> fly over to that thing like i can do whatever i want and you know, maybe a giant wind drift kind of went up the side of one of the mountains or he got a big downdraft, pushed the plane down right into the ridge, like just a quick, like couldn't recover, just a one like perfect storm of crap happening. 
that just didn't work out. I, and I did read the, the aircraft that he was in had a climb capability of about 300 feet per, I believe it's per minute. So if he's experienced a downdraft that uh, of 300 feet, you know, there's a chance maybe it caused him to stall out near the mountain and oh, okay. he didn't, didn't anticipate that. Um, yeah, and if you're over a mountain, it's not like you have a ton of ceiling mm-hmm. to recover from. It's just, I, and this is probably from growing up, um, you know, I have mentioned before, my dad is a pilot. A lot of his friends are pilots. Um, yeah, your location's unknown, uh, <laughs> unknown's uh, local aviation experts. Pilots so. are, are pretty meticulous about the aircraft they fly in. They know its capabilities. They know you know, how quickly it can climb, what altitude it can climb to. They know kind of, you know, they know what to do and what not to do in their aircraft, the, the experienced ones. Well, especially when you, well, especially when you're putting enough time in the same aircraft, you, you're going to know it's, I mean, I, I can't say I've flown a plane. My cousin flies planes and he's got that same thing. I ride like dirt bikes and motorcycles. Yeah. And when you're on two wheels, you kind of have to, you, you get a feel for what your machine is capable of. Like if I'm going to hit the accelerator, I know what's going to happen because I have about four different motorcycles. I know what's going to happen on each one and they're all different. Yeah. And I just know because I put so much time in like if I've, and a lot of people who ride motorcycles know it's defensive driving saves your life. And sometimes defensive driving is hammering on the accelerator to get out of the lane or something. Cause someone's coming over. Yeah. I actually drive my bikes differently based on what I know the accelerators can do because of certain situations I've been in. And that has only happened because of time and me not getting in wrecks and then understand like, Oh wow. Okay. That's stuck in my head. So this guy is going to know his planes, little quirks yep. very well. So that's where I look at it as it must've been something so sudden and so unrecoverable mm-hmm. that it just didn't matter. Yeah. And I may, that kind of makes me wonder if uh, he had some kind of medical emergency that incapacitated him and his plane just went, you know, was flying, flying in that direction towards the mountain and you know oh and just went boom right into yeah, it yeah because it was going to hit the next thing it was going to hit and that just happened to be the ridge yeah i i just can't think of another reason you know experienced pilots aren't going to take unnecessary risks he knows his plane he knows mountains are you know hard to fly around um so i don't know we'll never we'll never know the official uh report was uh you know you know, weather and pilot error, I guess. But this will lead me into a couple theories of what's going on in the Nevada Triangle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with uh, the very plausible and work our way down to uh, crazy. <laughs> I like it. So I like it. Obviously, the most likely and plausible uh, theories for what is going on in the Nevada Triangle is pilot error and weather. So, like we said, the Nevada Triangle is home to some very extremes in terrain, which uh, from any prior episodes when, you know, there's alpine environments that can cause a lot of weird weather uh, events, and it can cause pop-up storm systems that creates heavy turbulence, and that can challenge even the most experienced pilots. As you see, Fawcett, you know experienced pilot in some of the prior incidents we have you know marine corps pilots that have been trained on aircraft carriers and you know 
military pilots, and it's not just small planes. B-24s are, are large planes. So, uh, you know, all of these unusual terrains can create, you know, wild winds coming off the mountains. And, you know, that's probably what's causing the majority of the crashes. And you have the, the situation where if you have a mechanical issue over the Sierra Nevadas, there's nowhere to put it down. I mean, unless you can jump out of the plane, you're going down and you probably won't survive. You can't, there's no like farm field to land it in. <laughs> it's all mountain. <laughs> so yeah. that I think adds into the, uh, the factor. The next theory I believe is a actual phenomena. Um, it sounds kind of cool. It's called mountain waves. <laughs> so mountain waves are fast moving winds off the nearby Pacific Ocean that frequently push through steep mountainsides, producing a phenomenon called mountain waves. A pilot encounters a pilot encountering this phenomenon may go from straight and level flight to essentially riding an invisible up and down or just down roller coaster. The downdrafts produced by mountain waves are frequently strong and forceful, posing an extreme hazard to pilots. Hundreds of feet can be quickly lost, and some mountain waves and lee winds are strong enough to uh, overpower the ability of a light plane to keep from getting pancaked into the terrain below. Because of this, pilots are encouraged to maintain a high enough altitude above the terrain to provide a buffer in the event of downdrafts. Uh, even some clear weather days in the Sierra Nevada locations are unflyable. So this goes back to potentially maybe uh, Fawcett experienced a mountain wave and didn't have sufficient altitude to you know, survive a downdraft of several hundred feet and it pushed him into the mountain. Um, I think that is a very plausible explanation. <laughs> uh, moving on to uh, a crazy theory. And we've, t we talked about these in the Alaska triangle and probably the Bermuda triangle. I think it's a, it's a, a triangle thing. <laughs> so portals, <laughs> Uh, so according to Albert Einstein, space and time are woven together, forming a smooth four-dimensional fabric known as space-time. A recent study by NASA proved that Einstein wasn't only correct, but also that space-time vortex surrounding Earth is distorted due to the spinning motion of the planet. Some fringe theorists have posited a rift has occurred in the fabric of space-time causing small portals to open up in specific areas around the world, such as the Bermuda and Nevada Triangles. However, there's been no proof to date of such a rift, and the questions of where these portals lead to and why would they have been formed in a specific location have never been answered. Uh, well, that's just because we don't know enough about that's it That's true. We just don't know. And uh, I'm a big fan of Brian Greene. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who that oh, is? Oh, yeah. I have a signed book from him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the, so for those who don't, he's a theoretical physicist, mathematician, he's big in string theory. Uh, he was actually just on, I think it's the most recent Rogan episode. I haven't listened to it oh, yet, I'll have to tune um, in. but he talks, he talks about the relationship. I think they, they talked about, um, quantum computing and, and how it, how it works in string theory. But I mean, that's the more I learn about that stuff, the more I'm like, okay, maybe this answer isn't portals, but our understanding of space time is kind of like uh, he always talks about, you know, first we don't know about something, then we know about it, and then we're able to manipulate it. Yeah. We're starting to really understand space time 
and just how you describe that fabric of space time. And once we understand it, we're going to be able to manipulate it. And that means wormholes. And the interesting thing too is <laughs> I, uh, I'm not a physicist, so, uh, but I do, I do like these documentaries and a, a common thing that comes up is people talk, you know, these, uh, physicists talk about gravity and they say, we know how gravity works in the sense that, you know, a massive mass has mass gravity. kind of picture like if four people are holding a pillow, a bed sheet and you drop a bowling ball into the middle, the bed sheet is space time and the bowling ball is mass and thing that will create an impression in the bed sheet. And then other objects of less mass will then try to fall into that uh, impression. But yeah, they, if they fall in just right, they orbit. And that's why things orbit, you know, smaller things orbit bigger things. But they're like, we kind of know how it works, but we don't understand why it works. They don't understand. They, they know gravity. They know the basics of it, but. Like they don't fully understand why mass has yeah, gravity. Yeah, they don't understand why, you know, why does mass bend space time? So things like that. So I, maybe there is some strange thing going on in these areas that we don't know. The episode you were in, Joe, on the History Channel when they were talking about the Bermuda Triangle, they talked about that one pilot who was flying and all of a sudden he said he was like in some kind of wormhole and came out the other end and he was over Miami. But he yeah, and he, he like, was hundreds he of miles like away. 40 min- yeah. Yeah. He skipped like 40 minutes in time and his clocks didn't match yeah. up. And I mean, you could he could be full of crap or he could be truthful. Who knows? But yeah. Or there was like a, a, a real quick, tiny blip in space time. Like <laughs> yeah. something caused a rift in space time that allowed that to happen. He was in the right place, right time and was lucky enough that it didn't crash his plane. I mean, there are hundreds of disappearances in the Nevada triangle that the plane has never been found. Now that doesn't mean it's, you know, and in alpha Centauri now because it went through (laughs) some wormhole, but it just, no, it's that Simpsons episode (laughs) where they're all dumping their garbage in the wormhole. (laughs) <laughs> and the aliens, the aliens on the other side have like adopted all of our trash technology. <laughs> Remember, they're yeah. like, because they're throwing away Microsoft Zune MP3 players, and all the aliens are like, Zune. Oh, yeah. Zune. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I won't spend any more time on portals because my the, the final theory is a one that I really like. But yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. Probably not true, but it's fun to talk about. It is fun to talk about. So. The final theory is Area 51 and aliens, because what would be a good conspiracy episode without talking about (laughs) Area 51 and aliens? But the Nevada Triangle, Area 51, does flank its eastern border, uh, a big chunk of it. And we we have a whole episode on... And that's the big chunk that we can see. Yeah. (laughs) underground yeah i bet it encompasses a large area yeah so we did an entire episode (laughs) on area 51 uh so you should go back and listen to that one it's very interesting self-plug yeah self-plug i should actually put the episode number on here but i you know show prep um like i said eastern edge of the nevada triangle sits the highly classified government facility area 51 uh, according to the U.S. Air Force, the site has been used since 1955 to develop and test weapons and experimental aircraft. Remains from the Roswell crash are allegedly stored at the facility. Sp- <coughs> Episode 27. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, sparking decade, decades-long rumor that its real purpose is for studying and communicating with extraterrestrials. 
Uh, security around the perimeter is extremely tight. Anyone who attempts to approach will quickly notice something far more unnerving than aliens, locked and loaded guards that have orders to shoot and kill. Like, Well, that's why you send the Naruto runners first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by the Red Bull. Oh, the Red what Bull. a dis- Je- disappointing <laughs> event. <laughs> the storm area. Yeah, it was like five guys showed up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, and then just got arrested immediately. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been on my bucket list to drive down that road as far as you can legally go and like see the signs that say, if you, you basically, yeah, just to be there, just be there. If you go any further, you'll get shot and killed. Like kind of terrifying, but I may or may not know of a guy who's a friend that is going to go work there. Oh, well you probably shouldn't, That's you probably cool. shouldn't say any more then. <laughs> we'll no, save I'm that not. for the Patreon episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so people you know, people speculate that the real reason why so many civilian aircraft have disappeared is you could go two routes. One, the government's just shooting them down and not telling anyone because they get too close to the airspace. I happen to feel that if our government was shooting down dozens of civilian aircraft every year, that somebody would leak that to the public. I mean, that's pretty i i could go either way on that one i don't know i mean maybe maybe if it was like over the white house or something more public like if you're working at area 51 like i'd say just to work there yeah you're gonna have some level of clearance where you ain't saying anything i know but i mean i don't know fighter pilots they're you know they're highly trained they're you know they're plus i think we're they're pretty good at determining the threat level like if it's a little cessna's coming and all of a sudden they're in communication and it's a Bob yeah. like from local that doesn't know what he's doing, got lost. <laughs> I'm sure they'll scramble the jets and they'll, they'll like, I'm sure they take it seriously, but they're not just going to automatically shoot them down. No. And I mean, these, all these fighter, you know, pilots, they're, you know, husbands, fathers, they have families. They're not cold hearted killers. I feel like if the government was shooting down dozens of civilian aircraft every year, somebody would say something. I mean, yeah, by now somebody on their deathbed would be like, and by the way, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's probably happened once or twice, and we probably don't know about it. Um, I would, I would, I would agree with you because on that. yeah, it's uh, pretty serious. You can go on YouTube, and there's videos of pilots that just get even near the airspace, and they next thing you know, there's you know F-16s tailing them. So yeah. it's not something to screw around with. But on the other end of the spectrum, can an F-16 fly slow enough to tail a Cessna? Probably not, but they will buzz it, and yeah. yeah. I'm just trying to think of like, can they even fly slow? They enough might to be like able to stay I mean, with yeah, it. Yeah, Cessna probably go 120 if they miles like, an if hour. If they're like at an, if they're at an angle towards the ground and just rock and thrust, because they're not getting any lift at that speed. Yeah, yeah. More, more likely, they'd probably like radio you and then like do a couple like close flybys like showing their weapons (laughs) yeah i know like break the sonic barrier right past you just be like yeah you're you're turning around but yeah uh on the other end of the crazy spectrum though it could be that the aliens at area 51 are either abducting these aircraft or maybe the u.s government uses these aircraft to test new advanced alien weapon technology well, for that one where the guy parachuted and they couldn't find it, that's 100% what Yeah, happened. right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it sounds like a really cool X-Files episode. Um, in all honesty, I, I don't believe the Area 51 or Portal 
theories. I think it's something more simple as, you know, pilots just underestimate the the crazy weather that happens around mountains. But uh, who knows? Maybe it's portals. Maybe it's yeah. aliens. Yeah. You know, got to have a yeah, look. I, I like to think <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> so uh, that is uh, that is all I had, Joe. Uh, I no, I agree with you on that. I think it's it's more likely attributed to the, the thing that makes the most reasonable sense. But I like to always think so I, that there's something – like something – uh, I won't say more sinister going yeah. on, but something more interesting happening that that I, makes it worth tuning into our show every yeah, time we, we post. I, I, <laughs> I would like to say I've I've hiked and survived two of the triangles now. So I've hiked in the Alaska Triangle and the Nevada Triangle, and I made it out alive. Ooh. So oh. you're, you're starting. You're, yeah, you're starting to really push the uh, the boundaries. Here, I know. Mike. We just we got to go on a sailing trip in the Bermuda Triangle. Then we'll uh, yeah. we'll have the trifecta. Well, let's take like a little paddle boat out of like Miami <laughs> yeah. for like 20 minutes and we'll come back yeah. and then we'll technically have done it. Technically, and then we'll if, just if you've Miami. gone swimming off the beach in Miami, you've probably been in the Bermuda Triangle. So mate, boom. yeah, boom, done it. There you go. I've been there <laughs> and we were just in Tahoe. Yeah. So there, there you go. You go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's all I had. Um, anything else, Joe, from your end? Nope. Thanks again for tuning into our show. We appreciate all of you for listening and sharing locations unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I know a Facebook group is growing rapidly and we're getting a lot of uh, fans on there. Uh, We do have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to if you want to listen to our show on YouTube. And in the future, I'm not giving it a date because it is going to take a lot of work. We will start introducing video into our content, which will be amazing. Yes. Uh, I just got to build this studio out and it takes time and money. So that could also be a reason why you go and sign up for Patreon. Help us build our studio by becoming a Patreon supporter and you will be left with some cool swag and additional episodes that you cannot get here where you're listening to this show. Now. And maybe we'll even run a cool promotion at some point where we bring out one or two of our Patreon supporters to, to sit in on a, rec- a live recording in the studio someday. Oh, maybe yeah. that, that could be, that could, yeah, yeah, I think that could be fun. Yeah. We don't have the funds yet to do that, but yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, it would be cool. Um, that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, just again, thank you for everyone that's uh, tuned in and uh, we uh, will see you again. And as Joe always says, when you're hiking out in nature, uh, leave no trace. <laughs>